Hello and greetings from UNICEF Office of Research in Ocenti and welcome to all our hundreds of participants from across the globe. I'm your host Sarah Crow and this is the fourth Leading Minds online webcast on what the experts say on coronavirus and children. Today our level of our panel of high level experts will be looking at a topic close to the hearts of millions of children and young people and parents, educators around the world at this extraordinary time, remote learning and beyond. We will be asking the experts what this global pandemic and mass school closures are doing to learning gaps and the already chronic learning crisis. We are fortunate today to have excellent speakers joining us from all parts of the globe. From the west coast of the United States, our own executive director, Henrietta Four is standing by from South Australia, where Julia Gillard, Chair Global Partnership for Education and former Australian Prime Minister joins us. From Sofia, Bulgaria, uh, Maria Gabrielle, I hope she's about to join us, EU Commissioner for Innovation, Research, Culture, Education and Youth. From Freetown, Sierra Leone, David Senge, Minister of Education for Sierra Leone. From Lima, Peru, Jaime Saavedra, Global Director of Education at the World Bank and former Minister of Education in Peru. From New York, Robert Jenkins, UNICEF's executive, sorry, UNICEF's associate director. I beg your pardon, Robert, I gave you a, I gave you a promotion there. Uh, UNICEF's associate director of education. And from Florence, Italy, Matteo Brossard, chief of education and development in, at UNICEF Innocenti. And hopefully we now have our, um, the EU commissioner, Maria Gabrielle, if we don't, uh, we hope to connect with her very, very soon. I'm going to be speaking to all of them in a minute, and my colleague David Anthony will be taking a deep dive into solutions. David. Thanks, Sarah, and welcome to all. I will also be looking at the questions and answers coming from the audience in about 40 minutes, and then going into the solution session with a poll. Back to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. Now, for most of 2020 so far, the great majority of the world's school children, some 1.6 million billion at the height of the crisis, have been out of school, leaving parents, teachers and children themselves grappling with the realities of remote learning during the COVID pandemic. School closures have widened the glaring gap between children who have access to online education and those who do not. Yet the elephant in the classroom looms large while businesses, bars, shops, and even zooms, zoos reopen, schools stay shut in 130 countries, even though there is good evidence now that children in schools are not primary drivers of the pandemic. As some schools in some countries are, are now tentatively reopening with restrictions and risks alike, big questions remain. How can schools become safer and better at addressing learning poverty in the COVID era of remote learning and teaching? And even for those children who have had the best of the online learning experience, how much learning has really been going on? 
Before we dive deep into these and other questions, let me turn now to ED4 to say a few words to frame the discussion. ED4. Uh, thank you very much, Sarah. And it is a pleasure to see you before the UNICEF Office of Research Office in Accenti in Florence. It was just last fall we were there. And I'm delighted that everyone is undaunted by the lockdown and that you've moved online. So thank you everyone for joining. So let me pick up um, where you have begun, Sarah. Uh, with so many um, 1.5 billion children that have been out of school because of the pandemic, it means that there has been a cost on both their education and on their futures. Decades of experience and research has taught us that when children are out of school for prolonged periods of time, that their physical, emotional, and sexual violence increases, their mental health deteriorates, and they are more vulnerable to child labor and less likely to break out of the cycle of poverty. For the most marginalized children, missing out on school, even if just for a few weeks, as we have just experienced, it can lead to negative outcomes that can last a lifetime. Children who lack education have a lower life expectancy and poorer health outcomes. So reopening schools and doing it safely is an imperative. Some countries are now easing the lockdowns and may see schools reopening progressively. UNICEF, UNESCO, the World Bank, and the World Food Program are now supporting governments to safely reopen schools. At the same time, we must remember those children and young people who are out of learning altogether, who have no access to schools or learning, and this includes particularly girls, children with, with uh, disabilities, and refugee and migrant children. Because even before COVID, the world was facing a serious learning crisis. Over 50% of the children in low and middle income countries are unable to read and comprehend a story by the age of 10. In low income countries, the learning crisis is even more acute with a learning poverty rate reaching 93%. COVID-19 has exposed these disparities in a very dramatic fashion. The gap between children who have technology at home and who are supported by parents or teacher and those who do not have this has never been more glaring. In 71 countries, less than half of the population has access to the internet. In Sub-Saharan Africa, the ratio drops and it is now less than a quarter. And about 35% of households from the poorest quintile have electricity and thus ability to reach the internet. So as we reemerge from this pandemic, we also have the opportunity to reimagine better education systems. And we hope that with all of us here today, that we will make bold decisions and bold investments to address the learning crisis for all children and young people. This includes skills and training so that they can get a job. By 2030, there will be 3.5 billion children and youth be below the age of 25. The current quality and levels of access to education and skills development are simply insufficient and we must do much, much more. We're gathering partners and 
um, around an intersection of needs and hopes of dreams uh, around um, an initiative called Learning Unlimited. We want to support access to learning and skills for every child and young person, anywhere, anytime, no matter where they live. We want to scale up digital solutions and greater connectivity to reach every child. The goal is to have 500 million children and young people engaged in digital learning by the end of 2021 and 3.5 billion children and young people, all of them, by 2030. To do this, we want to connect every school in the world to the internet. Through the GIGA partnership, we're working with the International Telecommunications Union to map the location and connectivity status of over 800,000 schools in 25 countries. And we hope to have the first million schools mapped by the end of the year. And to respond to COVID-19, we're accelerating our work to provide digital connectivity for remote learning in 1,000 schools across 13 countries. We're also scaling up world-class digital tools so children and young people can gain an education no matter where they live. For example, we've joined forces with Microsoft and Cambridge University on what we call the Learning Passport. It's an online platform that gives children and youth access to their school curriculum online, wherever they are, including textbooks and instructions, and it's in their own national language. So taken together, these areas of work represent a great equalizer, one that can reduce education inequality and close the gaps between children and young people and the learning and skills that they need. But collaboration will be essential. We need more data and hard evidence on what works and what does not. We need more solutions for achieving good quality learning at scale and over huge distances. We need more public and private commitment and an investment to build and deliver these online tools to every child, no matter where they are or where they live. So I'm sure that these will be the issues that you'll cover today. I look forward to hearing all of your ideas and responses and the readout from this meeting. So thank you very much. We will discuss them with all of our colleagues in UNICEF and our many partners around the world. Thank you, Sarah, back over to you. Thank you, Edie, for clearly unlimited challenges for learning unlimited, but unlimited ambition too. I'm pleased to say we also now have our uh, EU commissioner, uh, Maria Gabrielle, who's joined us. She is the commissioner for innovation uh, and uh, research, culture, education and youth. And she's joining us from Sofia, Belgrade. So thank you very much. You heard in the ED's, uh, ED4's uh, talk earlier, uh, a lot of numbers. So as a visual reminder, and before I turn to all the panelists, let's have a look at some key data on learning in the COVID era.
indeed so many questions and so little time. So let's now do a virtual round the table. I will ask each panelist to introduce themselves just by name uh, and answer this one question in 30 to 40 seconds, please. As an education expert, what has really shocked or surprised, even angered you about school closures and learning during the COVID lockdown uh, globally? Uh, let me start, uh, if I may, with Julia Gillard in Australia, and then I'll move to David Senger in Sierra Leone, uh, followed by Maria Gabrielle. So first to you, and of course, Matt Brossard after Maria Gabrielle. First to you, please, Julia Gillard. Uh, thank you very much. My name's Julia Gillard. I'm Chair of the Global Partnership for Education. I was Prime Minister of Australia from 2010 to 2013. I would like to start just on a bit more of a positive note, which isn't to underestimate the challenges in front of us. They're huge. But one thing that has pleasantly surprised me has been the degree of agility that people have shown both within countries and globally in seeking to respond to this challenge. The way that whether it's uh, you know lessons on TV, whether it's Braille books being distributed, whether it's solar powered radios, a lot of agility has been shown in country. And I believe a lot is being shown globally. For example, the Global Partnership for Education immediately put together a $500 million US fund to respond to the COVID crisis. So there are some positive things happening, but a lot to do. A lot to do indeed. David Sanger. Sierra Leone, are you equally as positive? I am positive. Hi, my name is David Moyen Asenge. I'm the Minister for Basic and Senior Secondary Education and the Chief Innovation Officer of Sierra Leone. I think like Julie, I'm positively surprised and we will share some of those um, experiences. And one of those positive surprises actually comes from the reality that schools have to evolve. There has to be transformation in education and learning. We were aware of the learning crisis. We understood that most of our children were not learning, that in the poorer countries, that the learn, if you learning adjusted, yes, children are going to school, but not getting learning. And we knew things had to change, but this period of school closure has underlined that we can wait no, we can wait no more. Transformation in education has to happen now, and it has to happen fast. Thank you. Thank you, and Maria Gabrielle. Commissioner. Commissioner Gabrielle, are you with us? Can I ask you your thoughts on uh, school closures? What, what struck you? Do you hear me now? Yes, perfect. Okay. Hi, hi. Uh, my name is Maria Gabrielle. I'm European Commissioner for Education, Culture and Youth. First of all, I think there is some very positive surprises and I would like here just to say thank you for the extraordinary mobilization of our teachers, institutions, our pupils. That was great. If there is a need of something more, and that was a surprise for me, that there is a need of more information, what are the tools and the different instruments that we have at our disposal in order to pull resources, to joint energies and to have better results. That's what discovered, we discovered at European level. Excellent. Uh, Matt Broussard, your thoughts? Hi, I'm Matt Broussard. I'm lucky to lead a, a team of great researchers leading the education team of uh, UNICEF Office of Research in Ossenti. I hope everyone is 
safe and healthy, and I'm very happy to be here. Uh, also, building on what the other said, I'm, uh, I will take a positive surprise, is uh, the fact that we were able all together to, to do uh, research fast in, uh, in reaction to the, to the crisis. Um, we all know that uh, individuals are great, organizations are great, but the collective effort can be even bigger and having bigger impact than just the addition of uh, individuals. Um, Thank you, Matt. Sorry to interrupt. We've got uh, uh, three more to get through here. James Saavedra in Peru. I'm thinking now you might not be, you might be a bit more realistic, judging from what you've said previously. What are your thoughts on what struck you? Can you hear me now? Yes. Thank you very much. Two, two shocking things. One is that a myth has been debunked that uh, technology would save education. Uh, technology is absolutely critical, but artificial intelligence will never replace the teacher. So the social um, aspect of education is absolutely central. And the second shocking thing is that TV and radio are back. Right, they are uh, the the low tech and the high tech. Both are critical for a, a, a good uh, education experience. So a huge responsibility for mass media. Rob Jenkins in New York, your thoughts on what surprised or shocked you uh, with school closures? What surprised me was um, how far and how close we worked together and how far we went together to reach children in this very trying time. The average uh, program country where we work in 145 countries employed 3.9 different modalities on average, so around four different ways of reaching children from low tech to high tech, as Jaime just mentioned. So I was really surprised and encouraged by such a response. Great. Thank you, Rob, for, for keeping it nice and short. I'm going to go back now to Sierra Leone, to David Singe, because Sierra Leone had a, a really exclusive and a unique experience together with other West African countries in 2014 uh, when it came to when it comes to lockdowns. Uh, it was unprecedented then. It's unprecedented now because it's global. What lessons have you learned, uh, David, in Sierra Leone that you've been able to apply from that Ebola period uh, for now for COVID? Thank you very much for that question. I do want to, I'll, I'll speak about four things quickly. One was partnership and learning from each other. I think one of the things that we did very early on was through the GPE, the Global Partnership for Education Network, convene a meeting with all the ministers of education from low and middle income countries and the ministers from Guinea, Liberia and, and Cote d'Ivoire and uh, Pakistan and countries where um, they didn't have Ebola, but they were similar to many of the, those countries like ours, shared ideas. So this collaborative learning was critical because we saw that from Ebola period as well. So we quickly activated that, used the GPE network and had about 20, minimum 20 ministers and several other people that led to an even more. What we did in Sierra Leone was we knew that preparedness was important. So the minute we realized that COVID was coming to Sierra Leone, in fact, two weeks before our first case, we had given a notice for school closure 
We had reactivated our school safety protocols, which in included hand washing, uh, finding an isolation space and temperature checking. We had um, set up an emergency education task force with our development partners and local partners. And then we had with the Teaching Service Commission revamped our radio teaching program, which was set up from the Ebola period. And what we did was we went across the country, checked out on transmission, started training teachers, such that by the time school closed, the radio teaching was already happening. And the third thing I want to focus on was uh, prior, priority on girls. When schools closed uh, in Ebola, two things happened. Many of our girls got pregnant and they were unlikely to return back to school. But at that time, there was a ban that prevented pregnant girls from coming to school. In the week before we, um, before schools closed, the cabinet of Sierra Leone led by the president overturned an 11 year ban that had prevented pregnant girls coming from school coming to school. We, when schools closed, activated a zero pregnancy campaign where people from my team in the school feeding went across the country and engaged parents, chiefs, local leaders to have everybody protect the girl. And now, as of this week, we're developing a stay in school program for when schools reopen, where we give incentives to girls to stay in school. So that also was a major difference because we know that the transition levels and the completion levels for girls even when there's not an emergency drops down. So it was a focus on radical inclusion, um, partnership and learning from each other and early preparedness. So radio is obviously key for you in, in Sierra Leone, given that uh, internet is often a, a luxury and even electricity. But now that you're moving into a phase of reopening, how, what are the challenges uh, you're going to, to face now? I mean, imagining uh, large classrooms, uh, how do you support teachers with this in this new environment going forward? Uh, lucky for us, I suppose for me, is that I'm also the Chief Innovation Officer. So our National Innovation and Digital Strategy has what we call one of our principles is hybrid technology. So for us in Sierra Leone, it's not no tech, low tech or high tech, it's that we'll use a hybrid multimodal set of technologies that Rob was talking about to ensure that we guarantee the outcomes that we require. So if we need to give paper, we'll give paper. If we need to give teachers radio for continuous professional development, we do that in our partners. Several of our partners, um, like um, Purposeful Media, an independent organization is doing girls education program and another group is supporting it's giving radios um, as well. So it's that we have focused the technology that we need. But what we really use for school reopening is data and technology. We care about data a lot. We don't make decisions that's not informed by evidence. We've looked at the epidemiological curve. We know that Sierra Leone is on the decrease. There was a second peak recently, but that is also going down. We've looked at the regional data. We are exams for senior secondary school are across five countries in West Africa. We've collaborated with our partners. We looked at school safety. We just got support from GPE now in the accelerated funding. There's a component on school reopening and um, we have activated those. We also know, I, I think it was referenced in the video, that school is often the safest place for our children. We've seen many of our children around the world getting uh, child labor, sex workers, um, not having access to food and, and be exposed. And uh, we cannot then um, take children from a place where they are protected, where they are, they, are, they are nurtured, and leave them in communities and homes often where they are more at risk and not follow the evidence and data with regards to learning and healthcare. So it's that we want to, we've also had a consultation with everybody. 
Today, I'm hosting a Ask Me Anything with, with parents and citizens across the country about school reopening. So we're also very transparent with this process, but we lead right. with data and evidence. Right, thank you for the point on innovation, because I'd like to bring that up to uh, Maria Gabrielle, because as EU Commissioner, you also deal with, with innovation. Uh, and what kind of challenges have and opportunities indeed have you seen across the 27 member states in their efforts to provide children uh, with distant learning. Commissioner. Yeah, okay, now it's okay. Yeah. So thank you very much. Um, I would like to start by saying that uh, since the beginning that was very clear that we have some weaknesses. So I would like here to insist that we need to continue to work on connectivity. 80% of all our European schools are lacking broadband connectivity. But what is important is to look a little bit more closely to our rural areas and remote areas, because in rural areas, less than two thirds of the European population has access to internet. So we need to continue to work on this. Second, we need to continue to work uh, on equipment. We discovered that there is a lot of pupils and homes and parents, they don't have this, this equipment. What is the opportunity is to continue to work all together. First, we should continue to exchange information. We created a platform with all our ministers of education in order to exchange what were the best practices, what are the challenges. My intention is really to transform this platform in a partnership regular, uh, and we can, we can really take some, some, some lessons from, from this. The second, the second thing is that we need now to seize this political momentum and to invest in our education systems. That's very clear message because if you would like to have an education system which is more equitable, resilient, effective and safer, we need to invest in this. And that's why as, as the European Commission, we would like in the next three months to propose a communication on the digital education action plan with lessons learned from this crisis and the European education area where we'll pay special attention to vulnerable pupils, it's quite important, to bring, to have some support for parents at the same time to continue to have more trainings for teachers in order to work together. That's the biggest opportunity that we discovered suddenly that we are stronger together and we can achieve better results if you work together. Right. One thing you've also said, uh, Maria, is that you want to really focus a lot more on uh, upgrading teachers' skills uh, and retraining them, because now in this new era, they've got to be hygiene controllers and health inspectors and really take on a whole lot of more challenges. So how are you going to be doing that, uh, particularly with teachers and upskilling them? Um, first, I would like to say that half of our teachers were perfectly well prepared, but we need now to work with the others. My, I have three, three, three elements of, of answer for this question. First, we should continue to work on establishment of platform for quality content. We have some very good examples. It's our e-training platform. It's our ePAL platform for adult learning. But we need to work that as European level, at global level, we have platforms where the access to a quality content is free and it's for all our pupils. And what is important is that in the framework of this platform, our teachers can propose us their ideas and their solutions. Second thing, 
in the framework of our Erasmus Plus program, we would like to propose the creation of a European Teachers Academies. What is this? We would like to bring our teachers together in order to work together with their different experiences and to organize practical cross-border learning. That means that one of the topics that can be, can be addressed is the effective use of digital tools in teaching and in learning. I think that it's really up to them to, 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 have, to bring to us their, their ideas. And finally, what will be very important for me is to see how together with parents, with pupils, we can continue to have more, more positive ideas. And that will be the case, as I already mentioned it, with the European Education Area and with the Digital Education Action Plan. Thank, thank you very much, Commissioner. There's a lot to get through, so I'm going to, I'm going to speed up the pace just a bit because we'll be coming to the solutions towards the end of the programme. Um, so this is the kind of thread that we're trying to weave through. Uh, Julia Gillard, turning now to you, you heard from Sierra Leone, from David Zenge, a lot of the challenges around girls' education, particularly now that girls are in lockdown. They have a unique experience um, at, at a time like this. And in your field, uh, it, it's been something close to your heart, hasn't it, um, girls' education? What are your concerns specifically now around girls being in lockdown? Well, I would uh, echo the concerns that David's brought to the table. The evidence does show from the Ebola crisis that the most marginalised girls never made a return to school. Uh, and so in this time, we think it's particularly important as people are planning uh, school returns, that they are planning in how to attract the most marginalised children back to school. And a number of GPE countries are, for example, going to make available some small incentive payments to families uh, to encourage school return. Uh, what David says about data is absolutely right. If we don't know where the children are, then we don't know how many um, are missing out and where they've gone. So that data is really important. Uh, we also think that uh, continuing to press hard on putting gender at the centre of education planning is incredibly important. So girls are returning to schools that are gender responsive, uh, that have got curriculum that's gender responsive, facilities that are gender responsive, uh, that do things like deal with uh, menstrual cycles and the rest so that girls can feel that school is a welcoming and safe place for them. Uh, that's why one of the elements that uh, countries are looking for, and we know that GPE funding is being programmed for, are special measures to help girls feel um, that they are back where they need to be when they are back at school. Do you see a time now uh, that this is you know, a, a, a moment to to really build up more robust uh, systems and stronger systems, especially to address learning poverty. Oh, I certainly do. I mean, I uh, think it, in, in crisis, there can be opportunities as well. And I do think that um, this crisis is forcing all of us uh, to learn uh, very, very rapidly skills that we might have acquired more slowly over time. Uh, one of those skills is exactly what we're doing now and all of the virtual working skills, we've been turbocharged in that. We've had to do it. 
Uh, and because uh, many countries have had to do a series of things very quickly, we are already hearing them say that they want to take some elements of those with them, not to replace the classroom, because that classroom interaction, uh, you know, Jaime is absolutely right, nothing's going to replace a kid and a teacher being in the same physical space together. But we don't know countries like Pakistan are looking at some of the things they're being forced to do now and saying that we want to keep that new skill and use it to reach some of the hardest to access children in terms of geographic terrain who are currently out of school. So if we can not only plan effective returns, but take what we've learned with us as strategies for the future, then perhaps we will be working and strengthening that education muscle. And as you say, with the learning crisis, we absolutely have to do that. Strengthening the education muscle that, of course, parents in particular uh, have had to really rapidly scale up um, their ability to do all of that. Uh, turning to you now, Jamesa Vedra, when it comes to parents around the world, they must be hugely concerned about the, the impact of, of, their, of this on um, their children's education. Uh, the World Bank has just come out with a new assessment uh, released on the global loss of actual learning during lockdowns. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yes, thank you. I mean, following up on what uh, Julia was saying, I mean, this is, uh, we were already living a learning crisis. Um, it, we, we would, it would, this would have, conversation would have happened in January. We would have said that we are in deep trouble, but now things are worse. I mean, the, um, I, I'm gonna be optimistic later, but let me be realistic now. I mean, this twin shock, Right, of school closures and then a huge economic recession will have an immense impact on nutrition of students, mental health, dropout rates, learning, human capital accumulation. Uh, so many aspects of the whole education experience. But uh, trying to quantify what the impacts um, um, have, um, have been or might be, depending on how this crisis evolves. Um, we have, uh, I mean, actually today, we're gonna release a, release a report that is trying to calculate and assess that. So what we come out is that in an intermediate scenario, this is not the pessimistic scenario, in an intermediate scenario, um, if we look at the um, uh, learning adjusted years of schooling, uh, this is the concept that we, uh, that we have been using as part of the Human Capital uh, Index of the World Bank, there is a loss of about 0.6 years of learning adjusted, quality adjusted years of schooling. That loss in terms of years of schooling and learning maps to each student who is in the current cohort of students who, or who, who should be on basic education will be losing about $16,000 in net present value in their lives. So each person who should be in school today will be losing $16,000. Uh, that maps, it, we aggregate for this generation that they are, uh, they are losing about $10 trillion. And remember that this is the generation that will be paying the debt in which all countries are incurring today in order to manage and handle and handle this crisis. We also look at the PISA, using PISA data for about 80 countries for which we have data. And um, the numbers that we have come in this intermediate scenario is that the percentage of students who do not achieve the minimum proficiency level will, could be going up from 40% to 50%. So 10 percentage points. 
That's a huge loss. And finally, in terms of dropout rates, in this intermediate scenario, this is not the negative scenario. And this is only about thinking about school closures that last five months on average. Could be, they could be longer. We don't know how protracted this crisis. We may have um, just just lost Jaime Saavedra there. Uh, Jaime, can we try? I'm to sorry. Back? Yeah. There you're back. Yeah, no, no, that's that's that. That's I, fine. I, I want so, to pick you up on the on the one point, particularly around the different curricula, because of course, as you said uh, at, at another point, that it's not just uh, the, this, the children in the global south that have a different school year have lost even correct. more, haven't they? Exactly. So this, I mean, we are assuming these are scenarios that are that I'm, that I'm depicting is assuming a five month school closure, which in the south could be longer. Right, because actually the school year goes roughly between February and December. So this crisis is, 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 is hitting right in the middle of the, of the school year. So uh, just, just to emphasize, the, uh, the magnitude of the crisis uh, is extremely large. We have never lived a twin shock like this one in the education system in our lifetimes. Yeah, staggering, staggering figures. Uh, are there any opportunities though with this seeing that we're probably going to be in this lockdown and lift and lockdown and lift scenario we're seeing just uh, mm -hmm. in this past couple of days in Beijing. Uh, what opportunities do you see here for uh, building back better? Yeah, yeah. so look, about at uh, this stage, about 130 countries have implemented different types of multi-platform uh, multi strategies on remote learning, obviously with different levels of uh, effectiveness and, and depth. However, all these investments, I, we see them as a launching pad for the future. The future has been propelled to the present. So many things that we thought they would happen in the, uh, in the, in the, coming, in the coming years, they will have to happen today, right? And today we need to shape, and I think that's already happening, shaping a school that is resilient, right? Meaning that the schooling and the education experience have to be a continuum from home to school. And that requires several things. One is that we need to keep on investing in this multimodal approach, right? Uh, combining radio, TV, online, trying to close the huge digital divide that we that we have seen uh, that exists. But at the same time, making sure that is reading there is reading material at the school and there is reading material at home. So we really need to put the conditions of a school that goes beyond walls. Right, it's an education experience that is at the school, but that will have to continue at home. And that requires, second, that resiliency of the system requires a huge investment in parents and communities, because they need to internalize that the education process is, um, is dependent on them, and they are main characters in the education experience of their children. And finally, we need, we, we need to shape a school that is more individualized. We, we knew already, right, that all, children's, uh, all children are different, right? Uh, there, are, there are levels, uh, the speed in which they, they acquire learning is different, their backgrounds are different. Um, and we knew that teaching at the right level was critical, but now it's even more critical because the differences of experience of children have been amplified. So hence, we need to go back to a, to a school that can provide the right experience to each children. But that requires two things, investing much more in teachers, because this is a really complicated task for teachers, and to use technology, 
precisely, right, to use the right software, Heredite connectivity, to work with children and to try to expand faster teacher development programs, uh, teacher, uh, teachers' professional development programs. Technology is the only thing that will allow us to do that fast. Right, thank you, Jaime. Uh, turning to you, Matt, we're really uh, getting quite tight on time. There's a lot of skepticism, as you've heard already, about the effectiveness of remote learning. And you've done, you and your team, have done research in about 127 countries on remote learning. How would you sum that up? And what are the key challenges for this future school, this future, future schooling, future learning that we're seeing? Consistently with uh, what actually David, Julia, and uh, Jaime said, I mean, three quick points. One, we know that the learning loss is big and will be big, in particular for the most uh, vulnerable, the poorest girls in remote areas and the other most vulnerable. Why disparities across countries and within countries in terms of opportunities for, for remote learning? Uh, we all know there is a lack of electricity, in, for example, in Africa, 650 million people without electricity, Ethiopia, 80%. Uh, so huge differences in terms of access to uh, electricity, let alone uh, connectivity. Parental uh, support, also big disparities across countries and within countries. Taking the example of Pakistan, Pujam province, for example, uh, there is uh, big evidence that when we are looking at the poorest quintile using UNICEF household survey mixed data. When the parents are able to support their kids to learn, it makes a huge difference. Uh, the, the kids from a poorest quintile that have a parent that is able to read, they are 29% able to read the simple text using the same kind of measurement that Jaime was talking. It's only 15% when their parents cannot, and a lot of parents are illiterate, unfortunately. Second point, government responses, the, the, the research we have done. As David mentioned, hybrid, uh, no one size fits all. Of course, you cannot provide uh, an internet tool in a case where there is not even electricity in the home. So the, the solution has been a mix of things We're using multiple channels from internet to TV, radio, and also paper-based take-home paper, uh, paper-based learning package for, for take-home. And that's what we see in the picture, both big difference across countries, but we, even within countries, we have an hybrid approach, as David said. Third point, last point um, about IT, online learning, is just a tool. Uh, at the end of the day, we are still lacking evidence of real good tools that are making a huge difference being effective for learning outcomes. It cannot replace important thing about content of the tool, and it cannot replace teacher completely. Bended approach are mainly the most promising practice that we see more and more learning passport that is uh, pushed by UNICEF uh, with Microsoft and University of Cambridge. Other platforms like Calculus are promising, but still a lot to be unpacked in terms of what works, in which condition, which, which implementation, etc. Over. It seems a hybrid model is, is the, the, the recurring theme here. Uh, turning to you now, uh, Robert Jenkins, you've been in discussion, UNICEF and partners, with uh, on, ongoing discussions with ministries of education around the world uh, for these safe returns to school. Uh, what does that roadmap look like so far? 
So, um, yeah, thanks. I mean, uh, one challenge of going last is a lot's been said before you. The yes. benefit is, of course, you heard from everyone. But I, um, uh, we are encouraged by uh, the discussions happening in capitals all over the world on reopening. Um, mainly around, let me just highlight three quick points. We are encouraged by the focus on reaching the most vulnerable, and that has come up many times in this conversation. Um, who are the most vulnerable? It depends on each context. Indeed, there are some common uh, globally shared uh, concerns around barriers that girls face in realizing their full potential, particularly adolescent girls, margin, um, children from ethnic minorities who speak a different language than what's taught in schools, the extra, um, children in poorest households, the disabled, but within each context we need to do the, that analysis and indeed many governments are. Secondly, as uh, Jaime and others have mentioned, can we look at new ways of teaching? Can we, can we expand the way that um, the remote learning has been currently been used and bringing it into the school system? I think that requires a continued mind shift around, let's reach each and every child meeting their individual needs using the wide range of tools that now we have at our disposal. So we are encouraged, many governments are, are looking at bringing in new and innovative ways of teaching and delivering. The third is schools are beyond just learning. We're all focused on education, learning, 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 but we have to recognize that schools are platformed to provide a wide range of services, meeting the social emotional needs of children, their health and physical needs, nutrition, water and sanitation, protection and safety. And so as part of the reopening process, can we leverage the school system to also provide a full range of comprehensive support that children are gonna require? And indeed, with this growing evidence that uh, children are not really primary drivers of the pandemic and nor are schools, uh, this may well change the shape and form of uh, the reopening of schools, um, particularly, uh, Rob, when it comes to low and middle income countries. You were once uh, head of a country office. Are you seeing opportunities in this new field uh, going forward that we haven't yet spoken about, we haven't yet uh, highlighted? Uh, just for, for a second, just to think about reopening schools and getting children into a classroom where they have to keep physical distance of a meter to two meters when you've got, you know, 40 to 80 children in a classroom. It, it, it boggles the mind, really, doesn't it? How, how's that going to be possible? So we're following this very closely and we're engaging with countries all over the world on exactly these challenges. Um, and it's hard to summarize in general all over the world in one or two sentences because again it depends on each context and, and finding solutions. What's critical is commitment to reaching children and enable them to restart uh, schooling and, and figure out and problem solve within each context. Um, Right now, the data is showing that 75, 74% of government countries are employing uh, forms of risk mitigation measures for the reopening process, whether it's um, social distancing, increasing hand washing, behavior change communication, and other forms. There's a, uh, over half the uh, governments uh, are currently employing ways of proactively reaching the most vulnerable to bridge them back into school. That number has to come up to 100%. All countries and all governments and all partners need to proactively reach children. So it's unpacking the framework of reopening with the best interest of children in mind. 
I also, the last thing I'll say, Sarah, is I think this is a key moment for us to learn from each other. Take this model in this country and see what can be adapted and, and, and implement in another country. When you have leaders like David Senge, who's online, implementing some amazing innovative approaches, what can we learn from that and translate that and, and, and adopt it in other, in other countries? That's what we're focusing on right now. And part of what we're trying to do with this with this particular webcast is as well is, is of course um, join up all those all those dots. We've had a tremendous amount of, of questions and responses coming in, uh, and I hope we're going to be able to get through uh, at least a good portion of them. I'm going to because we are running quite late, uh, but I'm going to turn now to my colleague David Anthony, who's been looking at some of the questions that are coming in. Uh, David, over to you now, and in a minute after you're hearing from David and the questions, we're gonna have a poll uh, where you all play Minister of Education for a bit. So over to you, David. Thanks very much, Sarah. What a fascinating discussion. Um, the questions are equally fascinating. We only have time for maybe one or two. Um, and we'll try and get an answer from each of the panelists on very short, like Sarah's opening a gambit on the particular response. The first one is on slow learners. How in this remote learning uh, environment are slow learners or learners with disabilities being catered for? I'm going to ask that question to Rob, to Matt, and to Jaime. Rob. Thanks, David. Um, not sure if I'm comfortable with the term slow learner. I think it's it's every child has its own unique learning profile. And again, I come back to what's critical is to meet the needs and um, catch the children. Jaime mentioned teaching at the right level. I mean, um, basically, fully agree with that idea of um, monitor, assess, and work with the child in partnership and, and move them along their learning pathway. Critical to that is to indeed monitor learning levels across the full range of learning profiles and expected learning outcomes, and then adjust accordingly um, as a child uh, learns and reaches certain milestones. We have seen how critical it is for children to start school ready if five-year-olds need the the, full, the range of skills in order to be successful at school at a young age, that requires early childhood education. Then at 10, 12, very important to meet some minimum levels of foundational literacy and numeracy so that as the rest of the curriculum kicks in, uh, children are able to access it. And then moving into adolescence 18, a full range of transferable skills so that I can leave the school system or continue on to upper beyond uh, basic education um, and be successful as I transition to adulthood. So we have these key milestones, we have these key markers, measurement of that learning and engaging with children to meet their, their diverse range of learning is, is critical. Thanks Rob. Uh, on to you Matt, please. And uh, the slow learner, I want to give a good example, which is the Achelius language learning passport platform. It's, uh, it's used with a tablet online or offline. It's implemented in uh, several countries. I was uh, lucky to, to visit it uh, at the end of 2019, before the crisis, in Lebanon. For, it was used for Syrian refugees' children. And it was amazing because both what the teacher was saying, the children were saying is that even the slow learners, even the kids with uh, uh, issues on this regard, were able to learn much more than before because they could go at their, at their pace when using the, the tablet. It was it is, it is still implemented with the teacher with a blended approach, but it was an amazing good example of something that could make a difference and even more so now that we have the crisis and post-crisis. 
Thanks, Matt. On to you, Jaime, please. So we're moving to a blended approach, right, in which uh, learning has to be a continuum from home to school. And the blended approach will imply using high-tech and low-tech, TV, radio, online, WhatsApp, etc. Now, combining all those, what we need to make sure is the systems, when, they're, when they are designing that, they focus first on the most vulnerable. If we solve the issues for the most vulnerable, it will be more likely that we're reaching everyone. So that's the key, that's, that, that's, the, key, that's the key thing, right? To make sure that to children who have a, a, a disability, right? And sometimes that we're not even going to school with this blended approach, they might have a larger chance, right? To have an engagement with the education system. Children who were at home and with no reading materials or no access to, uh, or no access to online resources, we need to make sure that the combination of TV, radio, and printed material will allow them to have, an have a, a large exposure and a better exposure to the education experience today. Eventually, we might, we might reach with online to everyone, but that will take some time, and we cannot lose a generation, right? So we need to use that combination of high-tech and low-tech today in order to be able to reach everyone. Thanks very much, Jaime. My second question to the remaining panelists, Julia, Mariah and David is about preschool. Um, we haven't heard this mentioned so far on the webcast. A lot of people are concerned about what happens to the two to five-year-olds um, where remote learning solutions haven't been as far developed and many of them are not going back to school for the foreseeable future. So what should we do about those? First of all, you, Julia, then David, and then Mariah. Uh, thanks, and that's not an easy question. Um, comprehended in the work of GPE is one year of pre-primary, so we have been trying to provide supports there too. And I would point out that, you know, around 60% of the supports are low tech, around 30% are no tech, and only 10% are high tech, because that's the nature of the environments we're working in. Uh, so a bit like other children, there can be, um, you know, age appropriate, radio, TV, and the provision of learning materials at home. And then when uh, that age range education can reopen, it is about supporting the early childhood educators to work out what's been lost in the learning and what the recovery programs can be. So rather than just assuming kids are coming back to school where they should have been, or that they haven't learned anything, actually working out exactly where that child is and then customising the learning for them so that they catch up what has been missed. Thanks, Julia. David, please. Uh, so two, two approaches, two ways. Actually, our program with GPE, with UNICEF and the Teaching Service Commission focuses on early childhood education. And that means now one of the solutions we're talking about is how we train ECD teachers in, in combination with teachers who are at the examination classes um, using distance learning. And the second one is the, the program that we have. The first, uh, our radio teaching program, again, that's done with um, the, the Teaching Service Commission and the Education Radio. The first class is always at children at ECD level. And so in the morning, there's always music and, and, and fun activities. And something I did on the International Day of the African Child was to read a set of ECD books that we 
created with UNICEF. So the ministry, UNICEF and Osiwa um, has these beautifully animated books um, that's about family life and, and children's life. And I read it with my daughter who's four on, on, on radio. We uh, we stuck with um when David's frozen a little and, and early childhood learning, um but also now we're looking at how we can repurpose some of our activities to ensure that teachers as well can get learning and can um, do continuous professional development via radio and using these hybrid technologies. Thanks very much, David. Mariah, please. Uh, you're on mute, Mariah. Oh, so first, uh, first, I'd like just to insist how important it is to have a real targeted support to learners with special needs. I think that it will be one of our main actions too, because we all know that there is a particular need to to, to bring more support and more personalized uh, rules at the disposal of people that. Have, uh, have missed the same learning experience as their peers. Second thing, I think that we need a pedagogical approach. It's very, very important. Uh, we, and the third one, it, I would like that the well-being of staff and pupils, particularly in coping with stress, uncertainty, and change in routine, that, that, that's a key considerations that now we need to take into in our, in our policies. And allow me just here to give you an example. We would like to have a new initiative in 2021 that will be school success for all, a basic education guarantee. What we would like to do with, with, this, with this initiative is really to have a clear mechanism to help all pupils reach a certain level of proficiency in basic competencies. But to achieve these goals, we must target specifically disadvantaged groups more at risk of underachievement and early school living. And the, the social implications of this crisis will be also examined in this, in this context. I think that it will be quite important to take a little bit of our time to have some lessons learned and to integrate them in our future initiatives. There is a lot of positive things. There is weaknesses that we can transform them in opportunities. And that's a great momentum for do that. Thank you very much, ma'am. Um, now we're going to go into our poll. We're going to hear from the audience who's going to uh, have a, a little bit of a participation. And we've come up with a fun question for them. And this is what it says. If you were Minister of Education in a middle-income country with fallen incidence of COVID-19 disease, what would you do now with your limited resources to promote learning? Would you A, invest mostly in remote, learn, remote learning tools, for example, laptops, internet hubs, et cetera, in anticipation of further lockdowns? Or B, invest mostly in in-school learning, in, in learning support, including full hygiene and social distancing precautions in anticipation of a return to school in the near future? Or even C, invest in a hybrid of remote learning tools and in-school learning support. Uh, please vote now. Unfortunately, the host and the panelist cannot vote. <laughs> Even though I'm sure they would have wanted to at a point like this, especially, especially when you have um, a Minister of Education himself and a former Minister of Education. 
but uh, they can't. Uh, so we'll we'll let the audience go through, uh, ponder uh, their new role as a temporary minister of education in a in a middle income country, and uh, we'll take a very short break while um, while we go into a solutions. I think we've heard of quite a lot of solutions earlier, haven't we, David? Uh, yeah. But um, I think maybe we could have a, a brief summary after the poll. So uh, let's let's have a short break. Uh, just um, a couple of minutes while people ponder the questions and then we'll come back with some solutions um, right after. Welcome back. Um, this part of the, the webcast is focuses very much on solutions. Um, we've heard a lot about the issues and the challenges and many of the solutions are already coming out in the responses that we've had from our expert panelists. But now I'm gonna ask, uh, focus on a couple of things to ask our panelists to really delve just a little bit deeper into how we can make sure that education not only has become a global priority during the COVID crisis, but remains a global priority as we go through the crisis and come out the other end. But before we do that, let's have a look at the poll result. Okay, so we have quite a split audience here. Um, but the majority of the audience felt that investing in hybrid remote learning tools and in-school learning support would be the key thing here, rather than focusing on either one. Um, maybe just to turn in, David, to you um, and asking you, is that your approach or is, are you looking to do something different to focus on either one more strongly? It's very funny, you know, I, I was going to vote and I was like, I want to click and then I couldn't. But um, a hybrid, definitely. And I was talking to the, I'm actively talking to the chair of the Teaching Service Commission for Sierra Leone, who's watching. And um, she was like, of course, we're doing hybrid. And I was like, yes. And she was just telling me that they had discussed that in their meeting um, this morning or yesterday. Um, and I think it's important because you, you we want and um, Julia had mentioned girls who do not return and who do not transition. In Sierra Leone, the, 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 um, the gender parity at primary and junior secondary school is, is there. But at senior secondary school, you have more boys in school and it's worse in, 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 in high technical institutions. So what happens if we don't allow our children to take exams, like these international exams, the girls are who are going to be left behind. So the approach that Sierra Leone is using is to bring back our examination classes and we have the numbers and we can space them out. We can ensure that they have the learning whilst we then redefine our radio teaching program and our other hybrid programs for everybody else. And I think it just allows for us to um, have this hybrid approach, but also ensure that our most vulnerable groups, particularly girls and children who are not as well prepared to take these exams, don't fall that get left behind. Because the honest truth is they're not going to be learning as much, I mean, as they, they, they could um, through a, a teacher that's dedicated. Thanks, David, very much. I'm gonna to turn to you, Jaime, a little bit about what you said about the recession. As an economist myself, I'm deeply concerned about this recession and its effect on public finances all through. Um, what do you suggest or what is the World Bank doing to ensure that education remains at the top of national priorities? 
So look, uh, I was saying that we had a um, unprecedented twin shock, right? In terms of school closures to fight the combat the pandemic and then deep economic recessions. On the financial side, I would say we have a triple shock because I mean, this recession will imply a pressure on, on uh, public budgets. Second will imply that family disposable incomes might go down. And given that this is a, a, a simultaneous shock across the whole world, rich and poor countries, also international aid might be compromised. So on the financial front, we have a triple shock, right? So it's a, first of all, then it is critical that we understand the magnitude, right? Of the impact that this might be having on the human capital accumulation of this generation. And hence the key point is actually what's happening at the country level. Remember 97 or 98% of funding of education comes from national governments, right? And international aid is very important and it could help a lot in terms of leverage reforms. But in terms of paying salaries and investing on, on technology, investing in, com in computers, investing in, in all the inputs that we, that we need and all the organizational support that we need, that's national governments. So it's absolutely critical, right, that we have a very important understanding that the cost of inaction is extremely high, right? We, true, there will be a lot of pressure on, on, on public budgets. However, it is very important that we change or improve our implementation capacity in education ministries such that every dollar is spent wisely right and um and um and efficiently um and transparently and that we protect right budgets to education uh, it is difficult right because i mean there will be pressure from from all sectors but we really need to be cognizant that we cannot lose this generation right so to to we need to work on both fronts in terms of protecting resources on one hand and try to expand resources as much as possible but we need to be as efficient as possible right in terms of how do we spend those those resources and that's why these smart investments on these blended technologies right and like uh, minister Sanger was saying right is the hybrid model right in which we need to invest that is absolutely critical Right. And in, in many cases, it's about coordinating well all the investments. I, I like very much a comment that someone put there is a bad school with a tablet is a bad school with a tablet. Right. So it's not the matter of just buying inputs. Right. It's improving our implementation capacity so that all those inputs come together. Right. Like an orchestra in terms of improving the quality of the experience of the child in the classroom and that focus of what's happening in the classroom it's absolutely essential it's just not a matter of throwing more inputs right it's a matter of making sure that we yes we buy technology but we write the right software with the right curriculum right and a very simple and streamlined curriculum that we know that all kids will have and that at the same time we invest in the human factor such that it can use technology appropriately right if we don't have that combination of the right investments, then resources will not be well spent. Thanks, Jaime. Over to my UNICEF colleagues. I'm going to ask you this because I know a little bit about what you're doing. Matt, you're working on a really interesting project called Time to Teach, which you were doing way before the COVID crisis happened. Um, how are teachers going to be supported? What are the critical factors to support teachers during this time? Thanks, David. Very good question. Um, uh, maybe building on what uh, Raime and others have said, I think we, we, I strongly believe we should think big for the, for the future of learning and be able to communicate beyond education. 
in reference to the to the crisis of financing it's easier to to convince educationalists that we need more money for education but we need to also communicate and advocate beyond that minister of finance and others i strongly believe and it will link to your question that we should move towards from incidental good practices that we start to see in reference to the crisis towards a paradigm shift it means three key things uh, first keeping on measuring learning we don't measure learning enough and thanks to the world bank thanks to unicef thanks to other uh, learning poverty rate for example from the world bank or the mix with uh, which assess the household survey which now assess student uh, kids learning uh, in numeracy basic numeracy and literacy we are making progress. we should keep on that we cannot we cannot have a serious goal if we don't even measure it Second, in terms of the, the financing and building on what Jaime said, so important to, of course, uh, protect as much as possible the financing, but also the, the, the use of spending more effectively and also more equitably. I'm always struck, and it was uh, data that were coming from Time to Teach and others uh, study that in low-income countries, because the poorest uh, kids are going less to school, they benefit only 10% of the public education budget while the richest kids uh, benefit from 40% of it. So there is really Im important question there when we are talking about the resources that exist, even if they are scarce, how we use them, how we allocate them. Of course, what we see is in the low-income countries, if we push more, more, more emphasis, more budget, more resources from both government budget and the international on pre-primary and under foundational skills, basic numeracy and literacy, we will make a difference. Third, last point, in reference to also your point, let's work on, on having more evidence on what works. Uh, of course, on the digital learning platform that exists, learning passport, key resources, but also on the systems. Uh, we are pretty good, and thanks to the great work of the Global Partnership for Education for the last 10, 15 years, putting all together very good work on the policy side. But let's talk about implementation of those policies. There is huge implementation gap. There is huge Problem of scaling good things at, at scale for all kids in the country. So let's 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 do more on that. Let's build on the teaching at the right level. Let, let's work together. Uh, as we say in Benin, we are together for even greater, greater victories. And uh, I think we have now an opportunity using what happened that was bad to make good things about that, to build stronger, more effective for learning resilient system. Thanks, Mel. Over to you, Rob, for a, a tricky question about parents. I mean, parents, when I was going to school, parents dropped you off at school, they picked you up, and maybe once a year they saw your teachers, and if they came home angry, you knew you were in for it. But nowadays, parents are basically engaged in every aspect of a, of a child's education. What support uh, is UNICEF and others really going to give parents if this lot and lift continues? I think it's a, it's a great question, David, a great point. Um, I think one thing about this pandemic and, and school closures has been a growing appreciation of parents, of teachers, recognizing that many of us are trying to work and teach and support the uh, learning of our children, and we recognize how challenging it is. And I do think there is indeed a growing appreciation of the role teachers play um, in communities and in enabling learning of, of our children. 
Um, I think it's uh, critical that we look and uh, look at ways. Now we do recognize the important issues that Jaime Ray, uh, brought up around the fiscal constraints of countries and governments, but enabling sufficient support to parents, uh, financial support, social transfers, cash transfers where required to the to the most vulnerable to enable uh, households and families to have the resources required to um, to uh, enable them to support their children either as they transition to school or while they're learning at home will indeed be critical. We also have to recognize that these full range of um, modalities of reaching children now with learning are many times, especially for younger children, are through their parents. So the TV, the radio, uh, SMS, WhatsApping, um, paper, etc. We need to make sure that we uh, develop those in a way and measure the, the impact of those in a way that also enables children, uh, parents to reach children and to enable them to uh, facilitate their learning. So indeed challenging times for parents and for children, we've got to take uh, the best practices and, and take them to scale. Thanks Rob. Over to you, Julia. Um, I mean, GP, as Matt said, has been a tremendous fulcrum for pushing the global education agenda. Uh, COVID's come at a particular time that Jaime has really underscored for, for all kinds of reasons. What does the next 10 years look like for the GPE? And how can we really be stronger together? Something that all the participants have underlined today. Uh, well, that's a big question, the, the next uh, 10 years. I mean, like Jaime, we're very concerned uh, that the economic pressure that is going to be around the world and is already manifest in uh, huge unemployment rates uh, is going to put pressure on education budgets and international aid budgets. And so we think that this is an absolutely critical time to get out and put the message that education is an an important uh, human right, but it's also an important economic investment for the future. So it would be a flawed economic strategy that said, let's solve today's recession in a way that makes us poorer for the longer term, because we're not investing in the human capital today that we will need to maximise our prosperity tomorrow. So we will be putting that argument very strongly. Uh, for GPE, we are in the midst of adopting a new strategic plan, which will take us to 2025. Um, that, of course, is just five years before we uh, have the end of the Sustainable Development Goal era. So we're looking at this as a five-year instalment on a 10-year plan. Uh, we have our replenishment due um, around the middle of next year. Uh, so we'll be very much upfront arguing the case for education. And in doing that, and once again, I'd like to echo what Jaime said, um, we'll be doing it not only in terms of the international aid flows and replenishing um, money for GPE, but in terms of domestic expenditure. And sort of key to our model is that leverage um, that we need to see domestic expenditure going up at the same time as aid money is flowing, um, GPE money is flowing. Uh, we will be putting that case as we shape up what we hope will be a holistic financing conference, which is about uh, raising funds for the Global Partnership for Education's work, but raising domestic financing ambition as well. 
So many challenges, David. I, I think we're going to have to wrap up now because we've gone a little over and uh, the EU commissioner has unfortunately had to leave in the interim. Uh, so it's up to me now from my side to thank you all for your incredible commitment uh, and your fine words. And uh, it's great to hear uh, from Sierra Leone in particular that this policy is kind of being implemented as we speak. So, you know, just, it just kind of underscores the, the value of this kind of collaboration and cooperation. We heard about issues around hygiene and how children are going to have to really change their habits once they get back into school in big numbers. Uh, and in two weeks time, we are going to have our, our dedicated Leading Minds Online, the fifth webcast will be exactly on that hand hygiene. It sounds so small, but it is literally life-saving now, particularly as children going, are going back to school in bigger numbers. Uh, so join us, same place, same time, in two weeks time, the 2nd of July, uh, for more Leading Minds Online. Uh, from me, Sarah Crow, thank you so much for, to all our participants joining us from all over the world, to uh, our, our panelists who've been up late and got up very early from Lima to Adelaide uh, and all the others in between. So thank you very much and see you again in two weeks time. Thank Bye. you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you.